Good morning. So glad you're here, that we're able to gather together again this weekend as the church. Glad you're here to be part of this with us this morning as we continue to worship. Let's open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, and you can also have uh, your Looking to Jesus worship guide out as well. And as you open to Exodus 20, and even as you see the title of today's message up on the screen, uh, you realize that we, can, uh, we are coming now in our study to one of the most famous passages, not just in the Bible, but really one of the most famous passages in all of ancient literature, the Ten Commandments. So this short series of Ten Commandments, these Ten Laws, or these Ten Instructions, that God gives to his people on Mount Sinai. This is the beginning now of how God would unfold for his people a pattern of living in relationship to God, but also in relationship to one another. Of course, these are not the only laws that God would give to his people. In total, there would be 613 Old Testament laws that the people would receive from God that in some cases were very specific instructions for very specific instances. And though we don't follow all of those commands today because of the finished work of Christ in our place, there are still many important principles for us to learn through this Old Testament law. However, as you read these particular Ten Commandments here in Exodus 20, you see that though they are very clear, they are also fairly general in nature. So for example, God comes and he says to his people, no other gods before me. Do not worship other gods. Remember the Sabbath, do not murder, do not steal, do not lie. Those are very clear commandments, but in comparison to many of the other Old Testament laws that God would give to his people, the Ten Commandments are fairly general in the way that God lays them out. And that's partly because these commandments form the foundation for every other law that God would give to his people after that. So in some sense, the Ten Commandments are unique from the rest of the Old Testament law because rather than speaking through Moses as God has done to this point and as he will continue to do following this point, God now is speaking directly to the people at Mount Sinai. Furthermore, these two tablets of stone that contain these Ten Commandments would later be placed within the Ark of the Covenant of God. So these commandments are unique in that sense, but they also form the foundation for life with God and life with one another. And every law that God would give to his people from this point forward would flow out of these commandments that God gives to them right now. In fact, so foundational are the Ten Commandments to our lives and to our culture that we see them in so many places around us. Movies have been made based on this passage in the Bible. Countless pieces of literature since the time of Moses have made both practical and passing references to the Ten Commandments. At different times and in different places, the Ten Commandments have been displayed in all manner of places from uh, from homes to churches to courthouses to schools to other government institutions. And so when we come to this passage in Exodus 20 and we read these Ten Commandments, we realize that the problem has never been the accessibility of the Ten Commandments. The problem has been the acceptability of of the Ten Commandments. Because at its very heart, the Ten Commandments are more than just an apparent list of do's and don'ts. At its very heart, the Ten Commandments reveal something about our hearts. And when it comes down to it, we would rather not be told by God what we can do and what we cannot do. I read this week that CNN had an article on their website back in 2014, and the title of the article was Behold, the Atheist's New Ten Commandments. The Atheist's New Ten Commandments, and their goal in the article was to see how people, if given the opportunity, and particularly atheists, those who do not believe in any God of any kind, 
how they would bring order and structure to life and society in a different way than what God has already done. And so the article begins like this. What if, instead of climbing Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God, Moses had turned to the Israelites and asked, hey, what do you guys think we should do? Considering the Hebrews' bad behavior in the Bible, what with the coveting of neighbors' wives and murdering their own brothers, that might have been a disastrous idea. But in our more enlightened age, the article says, we are perfectly capable of crowdsourcing our own commandments, or at least that's what a new project would have us believe. So the article goes on then to speak of two men, one a corporate executive and the other a humanist chaplain at a major American university who sought to deliver what they called their own 10 non-commandments. So the 10 non-commandments, their plan was to crowdsource the best 10 non-commandments that they could find. So they offered $10,000 to any would-be prophets who could deliver even just one of these 10 non-commandments. And I mean, let's be honest, once you dangle 10 grand in front of people to rewrite the Bible, that's a pretty good motivator. And so in a relatively short period of time, they received more than 2,800 submissions from all over the world, and then they gave all of those submissions to their panel of 13 judges who would decide the 10 best non-commandments, and here's what they came up with. In the order in which they have placed them, the 2014 list of 10 non-commandments of our age. Non-commandment number one, be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Non-commandment number two, Strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. Non-commandment number three, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Number four, every person has the right to control of their body. Number five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Number six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Number seven, treat others as you would want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Non-commandment number eight, we have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. Non-commandment number nine, there is no one right way to live. And then finally, non-commandment number 10, leave the world a better place than you found it. So these are the 10 non-commandments of our age. Sounds about right, doesn't it? Like on a more humorous note, don't you find it even just a little bit ironic that our age is so enlightened that an entire list of non-commandments are commandments, right? Like this whole list of telling you how to not live your life is telling you how to live your life, which on some level serves to show us that we all long for structure and order within our lives and within the world around us. Like nobody thrives from the pain and the chaos that results from more and more people believing in less and less absolute truth. The problem is that we just don't like what God has offered us. Not only because of what it apparently reveals about God, but maybe even more so because of what it definitely reveals about us. So we read through this list of 10 commandments that God has given us in his word, and somewhere along the way, we are instantly and even graphically confronted with the fact that we don't measure up, and we don't like that. And so we push back against God and what he has said, and we end up with responses like, there is no one right way to live, and be open-minded, and you don't need God in order to live the life that you've always wanted to live, and can't we all just hug and get along and stuff like that, and we hear it all the time. And somewhere along the way, we have missed God's greater purpose in giving us the law. 
Like we've missed the fact that there's a greater overarching purpose to the Ten Commandments. We're missing the fact that these Ten Commandments are not just about us. In fact, we're missing the fact that these Ten Commandments are not even first about us. Like we live in a day when fewer and fewer people even know what the commandments are. And of the few who do know what the commandments are, even fewer still are able to articulate why God has given us those commandments in the first place. Like for so many people, these are little more than a bunch of rules and regulations that you need to follow in order for God to be happy with you. And even if you can't do all of them, just at least try and do some of them and then you'll be okay, right? No. And in reality, there's just as much confusion about this within the church as there is outside of the church. Like in some cases, we as believers have forgotten how the Bible talks about the law of God. That the law is not just a suffocating way to live your life that takes the fun out of what could otherwise be a fulfilling existence, but that instead, Romans 7 verse 12 says that the law is holy and righteous and good. 1 Timothy 1.8, the law is good. Isaiah 33.22, God himself is the one who has given us this law. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11, listen to how David speaks of the law of God. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. I mean, the Bible is super clear that we should love the law of God. Psalm 119, verse 97, the psalmist sings out and he says, oh, how I love your law. Like for those who have been truly changed by Jesus and we have the Holy Spirit within us, like this book, these commands should be the delight of our hearts and we should be praying more and more and more that this book and these commands will in fact be the delight of our hearts. C.S. Lewis responded like this. He said, that is strange. He says, you delight in all sorts of things. You delight in God, his promises, his word, or his grace. But who says, I love laws? Well, the psalmist does. Lewis goes on and he says, it's like arriving on solid ground after a shortcut through the mud and the mire as you're messy, squishy, and stinky, fumbling your way through life, and then you hit something solid. It's the law of God. Like, that's what the word of God is. That's what the law of God is. And more specifically, that's what the Ten Commandments are. And this is why we should love this law so much. Because this is the solid ground on which God has given us to stand, to know how to be in relationship with him and how to be in relationship with one another. So let's read through this passage in Exodus 20 and let's hear from this God who loves us so much in his word, and let's ask him, even right now, even as we're reading this, to teach us today why we need this law within our lives. Exodus 20, starting at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, am the Lord, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me 
but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, as we dive into this passage in Exodus 20 this morning, I I want us to see three reasons why we need the Ten Commandments, okay? Three reasons why we need this law of God within our life today. Here's the first reason. The law drives us to decide who God is. So the law drives us to decide who God is, to decide who he is, not in the sense of, is he the God that he says he is? Not in that sense. He has always been and always will be the God who he says he is. That reality does not and will not change based on whether we affirm or deny that. God is God. God always has been God, and God always will be God, whether you and I think he is God or not. But instead, we're asking, do I believe that he is the God who he says he is? Now, to help us see who this God is, let's flip back a chapter in your Bible to Exodus 19, and I want you to see how God sets the stage for giving this law to his people and what it reveals to us about who God is. So Exodus 19, God meets with Moses on Mount Sinai and tells him to remind the people of everything that he's done for them to bring them to this particular point in their lives, and God tells them to get ready because he's going to appear to them, and then skip down to Exodus 19 and verse 16. Verse 16, it says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. So like, just try and place yourself for a second in that group of people, in, those, in that massive group of Israelites gathered now at the foot of Mount Sinai. Like, Try to feel the emotion. Try to feel the holiness and the reverence of this moment as it's unfolding right now, that they are in God's presence. They are about to meet God. Verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and 
God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So look here how God is described in this passage. The people spend three days getting themselves ready to be in God's presence, and now when they're finally in God's presence, then there's thunder and lightning, thick cloud, trumpet blast, mountains quaking, fires burning, people trembling. Moses speaks, and God answers in thunder. Like, don't miss this. God is not just about to give people a bunch of rules and regulations about how to live their life. He's about to show these people who he is. And he is holy, he is powerful, he is terrifying, he is awesome. Like this is not just a bunch of rules and regulations about how to live your life, a bunch of do's and don'ts about this and that. No, this is God coming down, meeting with his people, and about to show them exactly who he is. And all of that sets the table for what we read in Exodus 20. Look again at chapter 20 and verse 1. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Notice here first in verse 1 that God speaks. God speaks. Verse 1, God spoke all these words. And again, God's normal pattern is to speak through Moses to the people. But here, God is speaking directly to the people. There's an urgency to this in which these people need to feel the weight of being in, this, in the presence of this God who over the previous few days leading up to chapter 20 has, de, has demanded purity and devotion to him alone. Like there's an urgency to this moment right now of hearing directly from God. But then at the very same time, there's a love that's being communicated here. Like verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God. He says, I am Yahweh. This is the same way that God has revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush in chapter 3. He's saying to him, I am the promise-making, covenant-keeping God. And, and he says here, I am the one who brought you out of slavery. I am the one who changed your life. And now I'm the one who's going to give you a new way to live. Like, see this. This urgency and love are meeting together as God reveals himself to his people. And that's exactly what has happened for all of us who know Jesus Christ in the gospel. Like, the urgency of knowing that this holy and righteous God has made a way for us to be delivered from his judgment and rescued from his wrath and saved from our sins comes together with this love from the God who has revealed himself to us by sending his only son to save us while we were still sinners. This urgency and this love meet together at the cross of Jesus Christ. So don't miss this. The foundation for the law is found at the foot of the cross. Like God comes to his people now and he does not say to them, obey this law and then I will save you. Instead, he comes to his people and he says, I have already saved you, now obey this law. Like we've seen this before. The, the best way to read the Bible is to try and understand how the original audience would have heard it or they would have read it. And, and there's no way, like there's no way that the Israelites right now would have been hearing these words from God and, and they're hearing these Ten Commandments and they would have been thinking, you know, sometimes like we think of them or sometimes like our culture portrays them. Like there's no way they would have been standing at the foot of Mount Sinai and thinking to themselves right now, oh man, like here's this God again and he's just going to tell us how to live our lives and it's going to take all the fun out of it for us. Like no way. Like, they are standing at the foot of this mountain, shaking in their robes because they are in the presence of this God who has just parted the waters of the Red Sea for them to cross over. 
And they're realizing that this is the same God who has reached down with his mighty right hand and delivered them from slavery and oppression and misery. And he has pulled them out and he is taking them now to a new land. And now he's giving them a new way to live that resembles nothing of the slavery that they have known for so long. And this is what God has done for us. He has reached down to us with his mighty right hand and delivered us from a life of slavery and oppression and misery. And he's given us a new heart. And now he is giving us a new way to live. Like we need to see this. The foundation for the law is found at the foot of the cross. So is that how we're living our lives? Is your life? Is my life? Is it an accurate reflection of how thankful I am for what God has done for me at the cross of Jesus Christ in his perfect life and in his substitutionary death in my place and then in his victorious resurrection? Let's take it back even one step further. What is your life saying about who God really is to you? Is my life all about me? Is it about what I can get or what I can do or how I can manage on my own and take care of myself? Like, Is the way that I use my time and my treasures and my talents, is it all about me and what I can accomplish and how much I can have for myself? Or is the desire of my life to live every part of my life as an act of gratitude to the God who has brought me out of slavery and given me new life? Like, understand this. We do not live for God so that we can be saved. We live for God because we have been saved. See, part of what we need to see here is that the law is a reflection of the lawgiver. Okay, so the law that God gives is a reflection of the lawgiver. So we have laws in our country, and those laws reflect the values that our country holds, whether we agree with those or not. So when God gives this law to his people, this law that he gives is a reflection of God himself. So when people say things like they hate the law of God, Or that the commands of God are so restrictive and boring and suffocating. Like that's not just a reflection of what that person thinks about the law of God. That's a reflection of what that person believes about the God of the law. Like these commands are a reflection of who God truly is. And he is majestic. He is glorious. He is worthy. So what is your life saying? What is my life saying? Like, what is our obedience to God saying about who God really is to us? Which leads then to our second truth. Not only does the law drive us to decide who God is, but number two, the law reveals what kind of people God wants us to be. The law reveals what kind of people God wants us to be. See, the thing about the law is that after God had given it to the people, he said to them, if you do all of these things perfectly all the time, then you live. But if you fail in one of these things, even just once, then you die. Like that is a hugely high, immensely high standard from God. So let's just look at these 10 commandments that God lays out for the people here in Exodus 20, realizing that these commands are the foundational way of life by which God has given his people to live. Like when God gives these commands to his people, it's expected that these things would just come naturally to us in terms of our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And so let's be honest in this as we go through this list. Let's ask ourselves, even now, how am I measuring up to the most basic standard of life that God has given? And of course, we know, even as we go through this list, that the danger in this is that it becomes little more than a box that we check and we move on. But understand, it is so much more than that. Like, if this law is a reflection of the lawgiver, 
then how am I measuring up to God's most basic standard for my life? So let's make our way through each one of these. Commandment number one, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. So when God says you shall have no other gods before me, he is not saying you shall have no other gods in front of me. Okay, he's not saying that because God is most certainly not acknowledging the existence of other gods alongside of him. He's saying you shall have no other gods in my presence. Can you honestly say that for the entirety of your life that you have given the fullness of your affection to the one true and living God? That from the day that you were born to this very day right now, that the most important things within your life have been God and his word and prayer and the people of God and the work of God and the church of God, that those have been the highest values all the time in your life. That there has never been a time when you have given more value to money or power or sex or self or you fill in the blank than you have to God. So remember what God says about the law. He says, if you keep all of these things perfectly all the time, then you live. But if you fail in one of these things just once, then you die. And so we look at this first commandment, and if honesty is something that we value, and don't forget, do not lie is coming up later in the list. Like if honesty is something that we value, then we all realize that we're all out of the game already. But just in case you happen to squeak through on that one, let's keep going. So commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. People in ancient cultures had many carved images that served as gods whom they worshipped. Later on, the Israelites would fashion their own golden calf, which of course did not go over well with God. But the greater idea for us is not simply some kind of carved out image. It's also that we do not create God to be something that he's not. Have you ever wished that God would be different than he is? You ever tried to ignore certain parts of God that you find difficult to accept? Like when it says in verse 5 that he's a jealous God who will punish the sins of those who hate him. And even while you try to ignore things like verse 5, you have no trouble accepting things like verse 6, which says that he's loving to those who love him. You ever tried to reduce God to something that you felt that you could manage? Commandment number 3, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Understand that everything about who God is and all that God has done is wrapped up in his name. And so he says here in verse 7 that we take the name of the Lord our God with us. We take his name. So do you realize that God's name and reputation are attached to you everywhere that you go and in everything that you do? But to take his name in vain means then that there's potential in the way that we live to empty God's name of its meaning and its value. So in one sense, this means not speaking about God in a careless or flippant way, but some people then would take this commandment to the other end of the spectrum and say, well, as long as I don't swear or tell off-color jokes, then I'll be okay. And it certainly includes that, but there's so much more to it than just that. Have you ever spoken of God or his name in a way that robs him of his significance? You ever spoken of God or his name in a way that strips him of the weight and the glory of who he is? Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath. The day of rest was patterned after God's work in creation. God brought creation into existence in six days and then he rested on the seventh day. Can you say that you have worked hard for the Lord in the place where he has put you always? Have you trusted him to give you everything that you've needed to do all of your work in six days? And then have you taken one day of the week not just to rest from that work but also to reflect on what God is doing for you and to delight in him? Like, this is a big deal to God because he says that this day is holy. 
And it's holy because it helps us understand that there is no amount of work that we can do in order to earn our relationship with God. Instead, it reminds us that God has done this work for us and he invites us to enter into this rest and to enjoy him, to delight in him. Like, I just wonder how many of us are completely missing the point of the Sabbath. I mean, the New Testament gives us freedom to determine when that day of the week is for us, but the purpose of it is not just for a day of rest. It's so that we do not lose sight of who God is and to remember that he has called us into this loving relationship with him whereby he wants us to enjoy him. Then number five, honor your father and mother. This is not just about acknowledging the rightful place of mom and dad within your life. It also speaks of how we regard authority figures within our life. Have you always completely and joyfully obeyed your parents? Have you perfectly complied with every traffic law all the time? Or listened to your teacher every time? Or spoken respectfully every time of those whom God has placed in positions of authority within our government? How are you doing? Anybody five for five yet? Nope, didn't think so. So let's keep going, shall we? Number six, you shall not murder. And now you're like, finally, right? Like finally, one for the win column here. Except that Jesus had something to say about this. Matthew 5, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. But Jesus says, even if you're angry with someone in your heart, it's like murder. So have you always been loving and gracious and you've never had a malicious thought toward people that you have a really hard time with? You've never called down curses on the people who cut you off in traffic? Jesus says, even the anger in your heart is like murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Again, we think maybe there's hope here, but Jesus had something very pointed to say about this as well. This is not just about being faithful in marriage. It's about the overall purity of our hearts, whether we're married or not. Jesus said again in Matthew 5 that anyone who even looks at another person with lust has already committed adultery in their heart. Is it true of you that you've never looked at anyone else in that way or with that intent? Number eight, you shall not steal. This one is pretty straightforward. Can you say that you've never taken anything that doesn't belong to you? That when it comes to your possessions and your finances, that you have always been a good steward of everything that belongs to God? Would it be fair to say that you've always been squeaky clean on your taxes or completely honest in your reports at work? How about number nine, you shall not lie. Have you always been entirely truthful in the things that you say? Is your tendency to give other people a better impression of you so that they'll be enthralled by you? Or is it your tendency to give other people a lesser impression of you so that they'll be sympathetic of you? Finally, number 10. Some of you are like, finally, number 10. You shall not covet. You ever been discontent? You ever been jealous of someone else's house? Wondered why they have a great marriage, but you don't? Or you've been bitter towards someone else who has something that you don't have, but you wish that you did? You ever questioned why God hasn't come through for you like he's come through for someone else? So we get to the end of this list. And remember what God says about his law? He says if you keep all of this perfectly all the time, then you live. But if you fail in just one of these areas, even once, then you die. And we take even just a few minutes to walk through this list one at a time and we come to realize that every single one of us in the room right now, we are zero for 10. Like we may do some of these things sometimes, but we never do all of these things all the time. 
The law reveals the kind of people that God wants us to be, and yet we see that there is no possible way that we can be this kind of people, which leads us then to our final point, number three, the law exposes our need for the Savior. Like the law shows us our need for Jesus. Like, just listen to what the Bible says about how the law works to teach us that we need Jesus within our lives. Romans 3, verse 20. It says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Like, amen to that, right? We've just seen that as we've walked through each of these commandments. But listen to what else the Bible has to say. Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Then we go on to Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14. Paul says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Like, notice that. Anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And then this part is glorious. Listen to this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Amen. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. Like the law, notice this, the law not only exposes our sin, but the law shows us our need for the grace of God. The law shows us how much we need Jesus because Jesus is the only one who can save us from the condemnation of not being able to keep the law. But why? Like, why is Jesus the only one who can save us from that condemnation? Because Jesus came, according to Matthew 5, not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So think through this with me for a minute here. Let's follow this track and and ask ourselves, how did Jesus fulfill the Ten Commandments? Like specifically, how did he do this? Well, let's go through them each again. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus was perfectly and entirely single-minded in his devotion to his heavenly Father from beginning to end. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He never reduced his heavenly Father to something that he was not, and Jesus never made out the heavenly Father to be something that we could better manage. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. The name of God. Jesus revealed the name of his Father to all whom the Father had given him. Number four, remember the Sabbath. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and in his perfection showed both his dependence on God and his ability to make us whole again. Even now, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father as a sign that his saving work is complete and to all of us who are weary and heavy burdened, he invites us to come to him and he will give us rest. 
Number five, honor your father and mother. Jesus did the will of his heavenly father to the very end, which included dying in our place to make us right with God. Number six, you shall not murder. Even as he was nailed to the cross, the heart of Jesus was never filled with hatred for his enemies. Instead, he prayed to his heavenly father to forgive them. Like, Just think about this. The entire mission of Jesus' life was to lay his life down so that he could give life to us. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus loves his bride, the church, with a pure and eternal love that then washes us completely clean. Number eight, you shall not steal. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come, Jesus says, to give them life and to give it to them in abundance. Number nine, you shall not lie. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. As John 7, 18 says, in Jesus there is no falsehood. And finally, number 10, you shall not covet. Jesus was perfectly content with the will of God. Even as he sat alone in the garden, only moments before going to the cross where he would die for you and for me, Jesus prayed, my father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And there in our Savior, we find the only one who has perfectly fulfilled the commandment of God. Like where we could not obey a single letter of the law of God, Jesus has perfectly obeyed the entire law of God. Like this is such good news. Amen? Like this is good news because in our failure, God does not lower the bar so that we can reach it. Instead, Jesus lifts us up in the strength of his own righteousness so that when we believe in him, we receive his righteousness in exchange for our sin. God recreates in us a new heart so that our desire is to be obedient to him. And then, knowing still that we can never do all of this on our own, he graciously gives us his Holy Spirit who lives inside of us to empower us to obey him. Like, this is good news. Like, this is the life-changing news for all of us. Christ has paid our penalty because we could not keep the law. And we have a new standing before God because of his perfect obedience to the law. So I, I just hope and pray that for all of us who walked into this room today and thought little more of the Ten Commandments than being a list of rules and regulations that drain the fun out of life, that, that we will see that this truly is the pathway to freedom and not a return to slavery. Like Just like the Israelites stood at the foot of Mount Sinai, we stand at the foot of Mount Calvary and, and we see hanging on the cross the one who obeyed our Heavenly Father perfectly to the very end. And because of his perfect obedience, not only are we counted as righteous then before God, but we are rescued from slavery to our sins and we are ushered into the pathway of freedom in him. Like I pray that, that we realize that the law condemns us but Christ, in his perfection, removes all condemnation for those who will believe in him. And because of what he has done for us, we are free. So these commands then are transformed right before us when we see that they are not the restrictive boundaries on the freedom that we think we should have, but they are actually the pathways to the very freedom that we seek. And so I implore you, loved ones, I encourage you, I exhort you this morning to love this law. Cherish this law, uphold this law, obey this law, and as you do, look to your Savior who by his grace leads us into the pathway to freedom. This is good news.